Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We love to tell ourselves this story of linear progress that it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's a ladder when really, uh, and I'm quoting someone else when I say this, um, another artist who said, you know, it's a checkerboard, not a ladder yeah. for most artistic careers. So that I think to me was a really useful analogy when I thought about the way my own artistic career has ebbed and flowed. And of course, um, the people in the book, a few of the people in particular in the book had really interesting insights in terms of that concept of making it and how, you know, for one of them, he said, you know, at this point, I just, I, tr I, I trust in my own work ethic that really my only job is to put in the hours and, and everything else, it's not up to me. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Rachel, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you. So I stumbled upon your book uh, when I was wandering through a Barnes & Noble back in the days when we could actually do that, which sounds so strange to even say out loud. Um, and lo and behold, I come to find out you had actually emailed me about writing this book and somehow I probably never got back to you or vice versa. <laughs> but uh, it was one of those books that I tore through in like less than two days because I loved it so much. But before we get into that, I want to start with what I think is a very relevant question given the subject matter of the book. And that is, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up influencing and shaping the choices that you've made? My dad is a film professor. He retired a few years ago, but is still... Um, hard at work signing book contracts. Um, sometimes for books, he doesn't actually seem like he <laughs> seem like he wants to write anymore. But um, he's writing a lot, and he's still doing some teaching. My mom was a teacher for many years, and then became a lawyer later in life. Mm. So, I mean, with your dad being a film professor, because I remember coming across in the book, and I underlined that, and that's why I asked with that question to start. Um, one thing I wonder, and I remember talking to Adam Grant about this as well. He said, you know, to me, it's a bit ironic because you're in academia, which basically gives you the freedom to take all of these creative risks, but you're teaching people in a field that doesn't have any of the certainty that you have as an academic. Mm -hmm. Um, what, you know, knowing that you, you know, were going to have this incredibly like, you know, sort of artistic career, um, and, you know, we'll give people some context for people who don't know what, what career advice did your dad give you as somebody who was an academic who had the certainty of academia, but the sort of, you know, mm -hmm. contrast of being an academic in the arts. It's an interesting question. My dad loves being an academic. And for a long time, I think I had <clears throat> that kind of life um, on a pedestal, you know, this idea that you could live this intellectual life, you, you taught, you wrote, 
that seemed really appealing once I became a writer. Before I was a writer, I was a very serious musician and both of my parents loved music and they loved how much I loved music, but I don't think either one of them really wanted me to become a professional musician because they thought it would be a very difficult life. So my father is incredibly pleased that I became a writer in many ways, I think, because it mirrors his own career. Um, and even though that's a more, un, you know, just as unstable in many ways as being a musician, he could relate to it more. But for him, being a writer always um, came alongside teaching. So I think he thought that that would be a really lovely way to live. Mm-hmm. And what about your mother? My mom, I think probably would have liked to see me do something more practical (laughs) than either music or writing. She's supportive um, of both of those things, but she grew up very poor, is someone who put herself through college and then grad school you know, really worked hard and had to make sacrifices and compromises along the way. And not that she didn't want me to do what would make me happy, but has a very practical approach to making a living. Yeah. Uh, Just out of curiosity, do you have siblings? I do. I have three brothers and a sister. They're they're half brothers and sisters, so they're much older than I am. I, I wonder, um, one, you know, de- depending on the age gap, like what, if any, was the difference in the way that you were given career advice or, or sort of advice about how to make your way in the world between you and your siblings? Because I think that for my parents, it was really easy to deal with my sister because she's like, oh, I want to become a doctor, which is like mm. every Indian mm-hmm. parent's dream come true, where I would <laughs> right. like, I hate hospitals and I want to do something that's creative, which is every Indian parent's nightmare come true. Uh, but yeah. I, I wonder, you know, was there a difference in the advice that you were given? Absolutely. I, my, my siblings, I think would say I was the golden child. You know, they, they had parents who had less money, had less time. My, my, uh, gap between me and my siblings ranges from eight years to 20 years. So I'm quite a bit younger. And by the time I came along, um, my parents were, better off financially. I think they were probably chiller, uh, because they had, you know, raised other kids. Um, but what I also had was a lot of pressure because I think both my parents were determined to get it right this time. Um, and there was a lot of pressure on me to achieve academically. That was, you know, this, this sort of standard expectation. You know, I, I remember getting, 97 on tests on a test, you know, and, and my dad saying, that's so great. What did you miss? You know? <laughs> like, I've, I've had that conversation with yeah, my dad. Too. Yeah. Well, that's like, also there's, um, in Jewish families, right. Uh, there is yeah. academic pressure. And so I definitely felt that pressure and I felt like all eyes were on me. Whereas with my, my siblings who would probably argue that they were kind of like benignly neglected, I I could have used a little less hovering probably. Mm-hmm. So with, you know, playing the viola, uh, 
how much of that was driven by, you know, this, this sort of drive to achieve was how much of this was about pressure and how much of it was your own standards? Because I think for me, mm. my parents were very clear about the fact that there was academic pressure on us. And they said, fine, you want to be, go make all state band. Great. I don't think they ever really saw it as, oh, that's this like extraordinary accomplishment at all. Mm -hmm. um, they, to them, it was like, oh, if this will help you get into a good college, then by all means, we're supportive. Uh, so I wonder, you know, how much of it was your own self-motivation and what did you learn about discipline habits um, and, you know, the kinds of things that have impacted you going forward as a writer that you brought from being a musician? So I was really motivated as a kid um, when it came to music. You know, I, my, my father plays guitar. And so that was the first instrument that I started on. I was six years old. He really, I think, envisioned this kind of like father-daughter duo. Um, but then I played, I played classical guitar as a kid, actually. And then when I got to elementary school and all of a sudden there was this option to play a string instrument, I really fell in love with the viola. And, and all that time too, I was pressuring my parents to get a piano because I really wanted to play piano they would tell you that it came from me and that when they said yes, you know, yes to guitar, yes to viola, then yes to piano. At one point I was taking lessons for all three of those instruments before I got really serious with the viola. For them, you know, they just wanted to know that I was going to commit to practicing each day. So it was sort of like, okay, if you want to take these lessons, you have to practice for X amount of time. But um, I never had any problem doing that. I really yeah. wanted to do it. And it was only once I got to college and I hit this kind of ceiling in terms of my own talent and my own ambition with viola that things got harder. And I, until that point, I really was a disciplined kid. And I know you've interviewed Ellen Winner and she talks mm. about this concept of the rage to master, which is, you know, a kid who loves music or art or building robots or whatever the thing is, you can't tear that kid away from what they want to do. You know, that's the indication that you should encourage that child to, to keep going. So I really did have that for many years as a kid with music. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I drove my parents insane with how much I wanted to practice. Like this yeah. was like an ongoing fight. Yeah. My sister was like, I hate that this is your instrument of choice. Uh, <laughs> Like I would go in the minivan and practice in the mornings because we lived in an apartment. And I remember when we came to visit California for my dad's job, we had a huge fight over the fact that I couldn't bring the tuba. I could only bring the mouthpiece with me. And my band director was like, you need a week off anyways before this audition. But uh, one thing I wonder, and the reason this is fresh on my mind is, you know, we just did a survey of, um, you know, the people on our email list asked sort of what are your biggest challenges in terms of your creative goals? And three things seemed to come up over and over. It was like lack of clarity, lack of confidence, lack of time. And, and one of the, the lack of confidence things was motivation. And, and, you know, I don't believe in myself. And what mm. I wonder is, you know, you mentioned this sort of rage to, to master. And I mean, obviously I think that has to be there to some degree to even do something like write a book or finish projects like the ones that you have. Um, why do you think that that is missing for adults who say they want this thing? Like, it's like, oh, I want to write this thing, but I'm not motivated. I'm not confident. Mm -hmm. um, and what's the difference between the people who manage to develop that motivation and the ones who don't? Because I mean, I didn't fall out of the womb this way. I mean, I was hardly motivated. I'm the guy who got fired from every job. So it's mm -hmm. not like I was born this way, but the music did make a big difference. It came full circle 20 years later. Yeah. You mean in terms of cultivating discipline? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like that was one of those things where I, I had discipline to the point, like I said, where I drove my family members mm -hmm. insane. I, I love the mental image of you with a tuba and a minivan. Um, <laughs> very funny. Um, 
So if you're asking, you know, why some people say, oh, I really want to write a novel and never finish the novel, right? So, okay, here's my brutally honest answer. That person doesn't really want to write a novel. (laughs) Like, that's why he or she is not writing the novel. Now, that's not to say you can't cultivate discipline, hard work, ambition, you know, or that you shouldn't value those things because of course you have to work hard. You have to put in the time um, to accomplish a goal. But, you know, when people talk in this way about kind of amorphous aspirations, there comes a point when either you sit you know, at your desk and you put words on the page or you don't. And in some ways, I think what would be better than beating ourselves up over not doing that thing we keep saying that we want to do is to interrogate why we keep saying it. (laughs) And, you know, what narrative is being fed by that? Like what part of your identity is hooked to the premise that you are going to sit down and write a best-selling novel or a novel at all, you know, maybe, maybe you really want to do that thing and it will eventually come and there's a block, you know, that you have to get out of the way. But if enough time has passed and you're still telling yourself that story, that energy would probably be better utilized, redirected in some other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that a sad yeah. answer? Is that like a no, 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 it, it's not a, no, far <laughs> from it. I think it's an honest answer in okay. one day. Uh, you know, people, people should actually be okay with admitting to themselves. I think that it's, you know, there's so much pressure on us from the world around us. I mean, you, like I said, I mean, I go through medium some days and I feel like, wow, I'm the laziest person on the earth. Like after reading all this stuff, even though I've contributed to some of this stuff that makes people feel like that. Uh, <laughs> we are so hard on ourselves and we're so addicted to formulas for success and, you know, finding the right, the exact right answer that we need. And, you know, all of this external input, um, it can be really good and really useful. And we have these aha moments when we read certain things, but we also sometimes I think distract ourselves with all these external voices and Mm -hmm. we lose track of the the internal one, you know, that our own intuition, like cultivating your own intuition is really such an undervalued skill, I think, Mm -hmm. as opposed to looking outside of yourself um, for someone else to be the expert on designing your fulfilling life for you. Yeah. It, it, well, yeah. I mean, effectively what you've done is outsourced the, you know, outsourced basically making your life meaningful to like the internet. Um, yeah. And the internet like, can't tell you that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, can. You know, I promise it, it can. Yeah. Well, um, sounds like you and I have probably both tried to see yeah. if somebody. <laughs> Absolutely. I am totally, I mean, I'm still so addicted to those articles about writers routines, you know, who gets <laughs> up at 5am and who writes at night and, how much time do you spend writing versus yeah. thinking versus what, reading? You know, I'm, I freaking love those articles. And I'm constantly like, if you only got up at five, if you only right. got up at four, you'd get X amount more done. You know, I mean, yeah. we're, it's just, we have so much um, that we can access in terms of ways to compare ourselves to what other people are doing or have done. Uh-huh. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, I think that's, it's like you said, it's like a blessing and a curse, you know, I'm like, I, mean, I get up and I write at, you know, five in the morning, like I write a thousand words I read. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, then I look at somebody like a Stephen Kotler. I was like, wait a minute, this guy's nine New York Times bestselling books. I'm like, what am I doing wrong here? I'm following what he's telling me to do. Um, and I realized like there's this sort of variable that everybody completely overlooks in this so-called formula for success. And that's the person they, yeah. you know, oh, I've yeah. always said like, this is the blatantly obvious variable. Cause I remember, you know, we did this mastermind about how to build an audience. And, you know, one of the FAQs I said, like, is like, can you guarantee that I'll have a larger audience? I said, no, I was like the last time somebody guaranteed something, it was Rick Singer. And all of his clients are basically facing prison time. So no, I'm not right. going to guarantee that. It's like aunt Becky is on her way to jail. So not interested. In, in, oh, I know. <laughs> what know, a fall. Being part of that. I know. 
Well, let's do this. Um, let's shift gears and let's get into the ideas in the book because I think that, like I was telling you before we hit record here, um, when I heard Josh Ratner say that you know a career in the arts is rigged for dissatisfaction, and he wished that somebody had given him a book that every parent should give their kid if that kid is interested in pursuing a career in the arts. To me, your book is that book. Um, I thought I needed to write that book, but then when I read yours, I was like, okay, I can't even come close to this. This is beautifully done. Thank you Uh, so much for saying that. And I I hope you'll send Josh Ratner my book. Yeah. (laughs) I'll I'll tweet him and let him know. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, But I think that, you know, to me, what really struck a chord about this, um, like I said, was the, the fact that we had both had such parallel journeys of, you know, being musicians who are incredibly motivated only to discover we didn't want to be musicians and then becoming writers. But um, you say at the very beginning of the book uh, that looking back, I can see part of what hit me so hard was being disabused of the naive belief that my plan for adult life will work out exactly as I had envisioned it. It requires having an absolutely absurdly charmed childhood to lose your innocence this way at 19, but there you have it. And it sounds to me like you're describing this moment in which you realized you didn't want to be a musician. I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that uh, and kind of use that as sort of the launch point for our conversation. Yeah. So my identity was really hooked in to the idea that I would become a professional musician. I loved music. And as I said, I was incredibly motivated as a kid to practice. Um, I loved playing in orchestras and chamber music. But what happened in college was that um, the reality, not only of my own talent, but of, you know, what I would have to give up in order to make it as a musician hit me really hard. And unfortunately, because I had tied so much of my identity to becoming a musician, it was very hard for me to let go of music without feeling like a total failure. Yeah. Yeah. How do you recover a sense of identity in that situation? Because, like, I've talked to athletes whose careers have ended. Um, you know, I was just reading the Fifty Cent book, the new one that he had come out uh, called Hustle Harder, and he was saying one of the reasons that people like him, Dre, and Ice Cube have stood the test of time as rappers, which I realize is a weird example given our conversation, but um, he said that you know these people recognized early on that music would actually come to an end, and as a result, they made sure that they weren't permanently tied to the identity of being musicians. And he said mm-hmm. it's the people who did that often end up being the ones who get washed up. Um, so I guess the question then is, is how, and maybe it's not going to be like 50 cent level success, but how do you recover a sense of identity when it's, you know, you've had one for so long tied to this one thing? It took me a long time and it took me until writing this book, I think, honestly, to really grapple with what it had done to my sense of self to give up music. So after I left music school, I went traveling for a couple years and I actually ended up writing a book about that. And that was essentially, um, a way of getting lost (laughs) after I felt so, you know, so lost from not having music. And everyone was asking me, what are you going to do after graduation? What are you going to be when you grow up? And I was like, F this, I'm out of here. I can't answer any of these questions. I have no idea who I am. And I really escaped for a while into this world of travel and then travel writing. And so my first book was really about um, that early stage of young adulthood when you're trying to to figure out what comes next after you have all the, the security of school and the kind of, you know, do this and you get this grade kind of... Um, 
reward system set up. All of a sudden you're let loose in the real world and you have to figure out who you're going to be. And, and so I put that off for a long time. I guess I, I guess I would say I avoided that question. Um, and then as my writing became more and more, um, the way I made a living, I had this identity that was tied to writing. And the reason that this current book came about was because I'd hit this place with my writing career where I was, you know, somewhere between emerging and established. And I felt like my writing life looked really nothing like I had imagined it would in all these fantasies of the writer's life. And that (laughs) felt really connected to what I had grappled with as a musician. You know, it was like, I didn't just lose music when I quit music school and I didn't even lose music. I just thought I did, but I, it wasn't just like music that I lost or it wasn't the hard thing. Wasn't losing music. The hard thing was losing this image of myself as a musician. And so all those years later, I was grappling with this as a writer. And I realized if I didn't figure out how to deconstruct these kinds of myths of the artistic life that had influenced me when I was younger and was influencing me in my 30s still, then I was going to be pretty unhappy. I didn't think I was going to give up on writing. Um, But I thought I'm going to be really miserable and jaded and resentful. And I have to get to the bottom of why, you know, so much of making art for me is also tied up in these other ideas and um, identities. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wrote a book called An Audience of One, uh, which is about creativity for its own sake. And I I can't tell you the number of times I must have said in interviews, yes, it's a lovely title, but I'm sure my publisher would be happy if it was reaching an audience of millions instead. And and it just, it's so ironic to have written a book about the exact subject we're talking about and yet, you know, couldn't be conflicted about the message. Right. Um, So one of the things that you say is that a first big break is the start of one's inevitable upward trajectory. Uh, is of course the fantasy of the uninitiated writer and how, oh, how I indulge it. And then you say later on, I don't know when exactly I linked the private act of writing to more slippery ideas of what it meant to be a writer, but it happened somewhere along the way, just as it had with music. I fantasized about signing one book contract after another, filling my expansive days with writing and research and my nights with wine filled gatherings to the literary elite. Um, you know, the, the thing that's interesting to me about this is I, 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 I'm pretty much like, like I said, when I read this, I felt like I was reading my life story because I think that happens to all of us where we mm. think, okay, Hey, this is the first big break. So first I want to talk about that whole idea of the big break and also this sort of fantasy of the uninitiated, because I had a guy at my CrossFit gym who would watch Californication and he would be like, he would jokingly call me Hank Moody. And I'm like, Hank Moody's life is far more interesting than mine. And he does far better with women than I do. Trust me, if I had anywhere near as interesting a life as he did, I wouldn't be at this fucking CrossFit gym right now. Uh, But where does this come from? Like, how do you deal with this aspect of it, particularly for the person who feels as if they haven't made it? What do you say to them? Because I think there are a lot of people who think that suddenly they're going to just, you know, have this massive sort of psychological transformation the moment that that thing they've wanted Mm. for so long happens. I would say there is no making it. (laughs) This is an artificial construct, you know, even the most successful people, I would assume if you interviewed them, they have another goal, another, um, you know, pinnacle that they want to reach. It's, you know, a series of horizons. It's not like you get to the mountaintop. Um, and 
you know, maybe that's depressing or maybe that hopefully takes a little bit of the pressure off because you know, and I'm from publishing books and, and the other work that you do that, you know, it's unpredictable what resonates with people, um, to what extent, um, but that you're always working, (laughs) you know, you never just sort of, I think reach this moment where you're like, ah, I've made it and that's it. I can rest and relax. And, you know, it's definitive. Um, but we love to tell ourselves this story of linear progress that it's, you Mm -hmm. know, it's a ladder when really, uh, and I'm quoting someone else when I say this, um, another artist who said, you know, it's a checkerboard, not a ladder yeah. for most artistic careers. So that I think to me was a really useful analogy when I thought about the way my own artistic career has ebbed and flowed. And of course, um, the people in the book, a few of the people in particular in the book had really interesting insights in terms of that concept of making it and how, you know, for one of them, he said, you know, at this point, I just, I, tr- I, I trust in my own work ethic that really my only job is to put in the hours and, and everything else. It, it's not up to me. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that is, and that's one of the, the most difficult things to, to wrestle with. I mean, I think that one of my, you know, like, like I said, I've, I've lit just amounts of like endless amounts of notes on this, but um, you said you had no idea how creative ambition and creative life balance could coexist because of achieve, achieving balance seemed to imply being content and didn't contentment mean you are no longer hungry. Yeah. And I appreciate the fact that you talk about having this balance between idealism and realism, because, uh, I think as you and I were saying before we hit record here, there's, I think a tendency to sort of create delusional idealism, particularly in the world of, of self-help books and self-development, uh, many of, of which you actually referenced in your book, some of who I was like, oh, wow, some of these people have been guests on our show, <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. uh, which, you know, and it's not a knock on their work, but I yeah, think that, not. uh, you know, we do have to actually address the fact that there is this sort of cultural narrative that, oh, you can do anything you want. You can be mm-hmm. anything you want. Which is not true. It's know? not true at all. No, <laughs> it's not. And we like, we know that intellectually, I think we understand that success is, you know, multifactorial. It has many variables. And yet we persist with this kind of mythology, even though we know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very American. I, I mean, I actually had other, you know, we're not the only ones that. Um, have this, but it's particularly American, this idea, um, this, you know, democratic idea of anyone can do anything. That's why we love, you know, formulas like 10,000 hours, right? Mm. It seems like it's an equalizing kind of formula. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think that, you know, the, the fact that you basically say that, you know, this is, there's no guarantees here. Um, that's, that's one thing that, you know, I, I think about, like I always say, like you're, you're signing up for a life in which nothing is guaranteed and mm-hmm. anything is possible. What have you done, um, in terms of your mental health to like not lose your mind in this process? Like <laughs> what keeps you grounded? This book was incredibly grounding. Um, and it's why I wrote it because I couldn't, I, I felt constantly in flux, you know, with every acceptance and rejection and, um, success and failure. And, um, I didn't feel on solid ground, but interviewing these people and kind of having to work through where my ideas about artistic success had come from was that journey of getting grounded, I would say. And it's not 
not to say that I have no ego anymore when it comes to my own success, but I have a lot more empathy and acceptance on a day-to-day basis. I handle the ebbs and flows in a more grounded way. And you know, this, this question of you're in the arts in this territory where there are no guarantees, um, everything is an unknown. I mean, that's life, you know? And I think the more comfortable we get with that uncertainty and those unknowns in every area of our life, for me, I think um, the better off we are. Yeah. So in the chapter on making it, there was one thing at the very beginning, you said that there's not anybody who's successful who doesn't worry that success will go Mm -hmm. away. And I, that struck me so much because I thought about sort of, you know, really famous actors, famous musicians. I'm thinking, really, does an actor worry about that? And then I remember thinking, I was like, you know, looking, going back to Sally Field's memoir where she said, yeah, there were a period of two or three years where she didn't work at all. Mm -hmm. And you, you think about that. So I guess, you know, do you worry at all now that, you know, whatever success you've had as a writer is go, is going to go away at any point? No, first of all, maybe I would worry more about that if I was like a New York times bestseller, that pressure there would feel like there's more pressure, but, um, but that's not the case. Um, but I, I don't worry about it, you know, going away. I, I more, I have more practical concerns about just having the time to write. You know, I'm a parent now um, and uh, I have a day job, which is not a full-time, but is a almost full-time type day job. And I'm incredibly grateful to have it because it offsets um, the, the risk involved, you know, the financial risk involved in being a writer. So yeah, my main focus right now is can I carve out the brain space, the time to do my work? Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that you talk about is, you know, the grand vision for your life. We said, you know, there's a moment that I experienced major disappointments in my adult life, quitting the viola, getting divorced, having my second book rejected, the moments where I was forced to modify the grand vision for my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that was another story. You said, follow your dreams, we're told, with not a whole lot of substantive, uh, substantive advice uh, on how to handle things not working out as planned. And yet things don't work out as planned for so many of us. Yeah. Um, and yet, there, like you said, there is a lot of this sort of nonsense of follow your passion with mm-hmm. no real guidance as to what to do if, if you know your passion leads you directly into poverty, which it does for a lot of people. Yeah. And then when they quit, which is an understandable thing to do, if you cannot afford to pay rent, then suddenly you're a failure. You know, if you'd wanted it badly enough, you would have found a way. Um, Mm. We need more classes, you know, for young people, I think in college, especially about that very thing, you know, about what, mm-hmm. what it really is resilience, right? Like resilience to me isn't, oh, you try, 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 hit your head against the wall. You know, it's not perseverance for its own sake. It's resilience is really, I think, again, connected to this idea of intuition. Like where, at what point do you stop pursuing something? And that's not to say that you should be a person who quits anytime something is hard. You know, that's a different issue, right? Like there, there are different books for people who have a quitting problem. (laughs) You know, I'm not, this book for me was not, you know, aimed at that audience, right? Like this is for people who try hard and they are passionate, they have ambition and they put in their 10,000 hours and 
still, it's kind of like muddy territory. Are they successful enough? Do they have enough money? How do they balance day jobs with their artistic pursuits? You know, I think we need to have a lot more kind of practical conversations about what it means to make a living doing something that we love. And again, I don't mean for those to be pessimistic conversations. I think that we've lost track of the concept of what it is to have a relationship with reality. That's not cynicism. It's not pessimism, but we're so relentlessly optimistic as Barbara Ehrenreich calls it and bright sided that, yeah. you know, we don't um, have any sense of what a sort of warm hearted reality means. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, I mean, I think also as a culture, there's this immense pressure to conform to that, that whole yeah. idea. I mean, and I know that I help perpetuate it with content, like the co- stuff that I create here on this podcast, you know, like I've, I've told the story before, but I had a, a listener who emailed me is like, you know what, these people you interview are amazing and I can't listen anymore because <laughs> it's actually making me depressed about oh. my own. And, you know, like, so imagine what my reality is every oh. day I, I talk to people like this. So, yeah. um, it, you know, what I wonder is how you actually balance having sort of this ambition, uh, you know, and optimism with the realism of dealing with the world. Hmm. I think you have goals and ambitions and desires. You work towards achieving those things, but you have to distance yourself a little bit from the outcome of all of that hard work. And obviously that's very much easier said than done. Um, (laughs) Like that's the journey, right? Like I'm not, I'm not the Dalai Lama when it comes to that journey. I'm not sitting here totally evolved, having disentangled my ego from my own success. But I think that's what you have to work towards. You have to work towards like really believing that the fulfillment is in the work itself. And that again is, you know, I think people get lost along the way because maybe they're motivated sometimes by things that are not the work itself. And that's where you get into like dissatisfaction, right? Like I'm motivated to do this because I want 10,000 Twitter followers or, or whatever it is, you know, um, I'm building my brand. Like all those things are, you know, part and parcel, of course, can be part of doing what you love. But if they're the motivating part, I think you're kind of missing the, the point of the work itself. And yeah, you're, yeah. you know, your work like owes you nothing in return. And people who are creative for a living, you know, who make art for a living, I think you have to do it because it feeds you. Um, otherwise you can't, you can't endure in any way that's satisfying because the other stuff is ephemeral. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like success is a thing that other people bestow on you. You don't have control over that to a large degree. And if that's your, your marker for happiness, um, that's a tough road, man. (laughs) I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to be on that road. Well, you know, I, this is one of the lines that struck me in, in relation to what you're saying. You said, you know, we're not supposed to long for things. We're supposed to act to get what we want. And longing is seen as inaction. Longing mm-hmm. is complacency. Longing is refusing to be grateful for and upbeat about what you have. Longing is misplaced nostalgia. Mm-hmm. It is true that an overindulgence in longing can ruin the present moment, but some longing is natural along the way, isn't it? And, you know, I think about that and 
I've had so many conversations here. Somebody once told me that uh, we were talking to a vendor about translating, you know, unmistakable creative into multiple languages using AI. And she went and listened to a few episodes and she's like, you must be the most self-actualized person in the world. I was like, no, I'm one of the most fucked up people in the world. That's why I use this content. It's to solve all of my own problems. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But the, <laughs> That's how I feel about that, my work. I'm trying to solve yeah. my own problems. Yeah. But the, the funny thing is that the fact that she thought that was amusing to me, but it, it actually, you know, made a good point in that, um, you know, I think we all can understand intellectually sort of, yeah, I understand that there's value in being detached from the outcome that I should be focused on the process. I know this because I was literally coaching my roommate this morning through a project that he's working on and talking to him about, you know, every day you want to wake up and just follow a process because it was like, we don't know what the results are going to look like. And yet I think that to your point, we long for things. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you mitigate that? Like, how do you mitigate that sort of longing? And yet, you know, because I think often the longing can actually get in the way mm-hmm. of you doing the work. The longing gets in the way when you wallow in the longing, you know? Um, and part of, I think ironically, part of why we sometimes end up paralyzed by longing is because we don't think we should be longing. Like we're beating ourselves up about it because it's, oh, it's inaction. It's nostalgia, whatever. We think that it's like, this, this feeling we're not supposed to have, if we were really nailing it, um, we wouldn't be longing for something we don't have. But, you know, I quote people in the book, Rebecca Solnit, Todd Phillips, there are lots of people who talk about kind of the texture of longing as Rebecca Solnit calls it. And this idea that actually you can't have, um, satisfaction without frustration, um, you wouldn't know what satisfaction was without having its opposite to define it. So for me, that was really comforting because it let me accept my own longing and to, to understand that that feeling, just like feelings of say disappointment, you know, other, other kinds of feelings that in our culture, we, um, are try, people try to talk us out of those feelings. Like, you know, you, you know, failure is just as, stepping stone to success. We're trying to like rebrand, you know, all Mm. of these moments, um, when we have setbacks, I think instead, if we could just let ourselves say, well, that sucks. Like I didn't get what I wanted, or I really want this thing I don't have, you know, and acknowledge that that is really normal and human and understandable. Maybe we would spend less time like churning around, churning in those waters because we wouldn't be trying to talk ourselves out of it at the same time. And then we could sort of just go like, okay, that's interesting. Let me have some like curiosity about why I'm feeling that way. Let me just sit with that for a minute and Mm -hmm. then we could maybe move through it more easily. Well, I I appreciate this because I think that you are willing to acknowledge reality, which I I feel that for so many self-help authors, they're not. We kind of um, you know, decorate sort of adversity and negativity in, you know, sort of pretty language and, 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 you know, put it into beautiful books and nice speeches, but it doesn't acknowledge reality. And, you know, one thing you say is disappointment lives in the space between wanting and getting, and we're taught there's where there's a will, there's a way. Mm. So the only person to blame, you know, if you're in that liminal space is yourself. And yet it's such a common human experience not to get what you want, maybe the most universal of all experiences. And I appreciated that because um, I feel like you know the culture of self development and self help actually n- ignores that to the detriment and to the detriment of people's well being. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I, I wonder, you know, when you think about writing books like this, and also you know, sort of the role of, of people like us in culture, what do you think our responsibility is when we're talking about things like this? It's interesting to me that my book gets 
categorized in self-help. I mean, of course, that's in one way, I'm like, of course, that's the place for it. But I once thought categorized in a bookstore um, under the label self-care. And I loved that. (laughs) So I was like, ah, yes. Like that's sort of the the spirit in which I feel this book lives, you know, like self-acceptance, self-care. This idea of self-help is oftentimes tied to self-improvement in this way that makes us feel like we're constantly a project that needs fixing. Uh Um, And that is just, to me, something I didn't want to contribute to with this book. I wanted this book to be like a sigh of relief, you know, Um, (laughs) this like sense that it's okay to feel disappointed sometimes. It's okay to not get what you want. It's okay to feel like a failure sometimes, you know, like not again, not to wallow, but I just wanted it to give a little bit of space to like the reality of how difficult it is to pursue our passions and pursue what we love. And in terms of, you know, our kind of obligation as people who write, um, I guess what you could call advice, right? Kind Mm -hmm. of offering it life advice. Um, It's to be as transparent as we can about how nuanced every individual's situation is. It's so easy to want to do a kind of formulaic, want to approach things in a formulaic way. And our brains, you know, want they crave these formulas, but it's just so much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. But what sells often um, are formulas, you know, and I, um, I was doing an interview where the person interviewing me said, you know, your book would probably sell a lot more if it was um, more self-helpy, like more the things that you kind of pick apart. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. It's, it probably feels a little bit like a downer in comparison to some of that stuff. But again, what I mean it to be is um, a comfort and a sigh of relief for people. Well, uh, one, I'm very glad you didn't write that kind of book. Um, I don't think I would have been nearly as interested in it. Not that I'm a a pessimist, but like I said, I think that what I appreciated was the fact that you didn't pull any punches about what people are getting themselves into uh, when it comes to this. Tell me about some of the stories in the book, because I think that when I saw the people whose lives didn't, you know, end up turning out the way they thought it would, it was kind of like, wow, really? And yet they also all, many of them seemed completely satisfied with their adult lives regardless. Yeah. I think that like all of us, all of the people in this book have their low moments and their high moments you know, obviously when you create a narrative in a book, you can't include everything, right? And so what for me was most useful is I tried to pull out the pieces of these people's stories that for me illuminated something that I was struggling with and um, that was useful to me as I, you know, embarked on this journey of like deconstructing these artistic myths. But I think all of these people grappled with, you know, balance of art and the rest of their lives and ambition and what it means to quit. But yes, they are, you know, incredibly grounded human beings and were, you know, instrumental in terms of me kind of reaching that place myself. I I always feel like I'm the last one to like learn a lesson and always the one to like learn it the hardest way with the 
<laughs> so I don't know. It felt to me as I was going along, as I was having these conversations, I had all these like light bulb moments where I was like, of course, of course, of course. But yeah. it's easier, you know, often to see, to see your life like reflected through someone else's, <laughs> I guess yeah. it took me yeah. with these conversations. And even, you know, I had this conversation with one of the women in the book, Lizzie, um, and I was giving her this whole story about my life after quitting Viola and how painful it had been and, you know, feeding her this, this narrative I've been feeding myself about what a loss of identity that was. And, and she said, it was, it's great. You quit. You were really unhappy. Just like that simple, you know, like summed it up that succinctly and that simply, like, of course you should have quit. You were miserable. You're not required to be miserable. And even having someone say that, you know, we, I think spend all this time in our own heads telling ourselves these stories about who we are and what we want. And yeah. sometimes we'd spend too much time in there. And if we verbalize it to someone else, if we can find an, an empathetic listener um, or a ther- you know, therapist would be the, <laughs> the sort of key one to go to, I suppose, um, but, or a friend or whatever, you know, oftentimes they kind of can summarize our life or our journey in a way that makes it easier for us to let go of some of what we were holding on to so hard. I appreciate that so much because I think there's so many people who have basically indulged in sort of the four hour work week fantasy or Mm -hmm. like living lives of nonconformity. And so they make all these just sacrifices and they suffer endlessly thinking that, oh, when I get to this level, this suffering is going to stop. And yet they don't realize that, wait a minute, this thing is actually making me really unhappy Mm -hmm. uh, because they feel almost as, as if it's like giving up. Yeah. Yeah. We are not required to suffer. (laughs) You know, I mean, again, there's hard work, uh, there's ambition, there's putting in the time, but that's different than suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think at some point we all have to have a moment where we check in with ourselves, if we're really miserable about why we are doing what we are doing, what have we sacrificed, you know, um, in return for what we think we are accomplishing. Yeah. So speaking of which, um, one thing we haven't talked about is the role of luck, um, Mm -hmm. and the role that it plays because, you know, as you said, we love the idea of sort of, Hey, if I put in the 10,000 hours, if I follow the the steps, if I do the routines, I'm going to get the result which we both know is not true. There are many more talented writers than I am who haven't gotten book deals. I know this because like, you know what? Me getting a book deal was a damn lucky thing. Like I happened to have an article that went viral on Medium that an editor at Penguin happened to see. Mm. Literally no control over that. That Mm -hmm. is a damn lucky circumstance. Um, You know, and so I I wonder how you think about that. Um, Like, do you think that luck plays a role in all this? Because I, as much as I hate to say that now, you know, obviously that we don't want to become deterministic and tell people that, oh, well, in that case, it's not worth trying at all. Mm-hmm. But we also have to acknowledge the reality that guess what? That exists. It absolutely exists. And it's really hard to talk about luck because if you talk about your own lucky breaks, it can kind of sound disingenuous, I think. Yeah. And if you... um talk about someone else's, you can sound resentful. You know, it's like this really tricky territory, but luck is a very real thing. And, you know, people have tried to quantify it. I, I talk about this MIT study in the book where um, these researchers, you know, use a computer model 
um, to simulate a group of people who all had a certain level of talent. And then they randomly insert lucky events, um, you know, sort of over time, over a 40 year period. And what they found is that the the wealthiest 20% of the group were not the most talented. They were the luckiest. Um, (laughs) And I also, you know, I, I quote some, uh, some lines from Annie Duke in the book. She's a poker player. Uh Yeah, she's, she's fascinating. Um, where she talks about, um, you know, the sort of luck involved in poker. And so we, we don't want to rely, I guess, on this storyline of luck too much. So just like we don't want to rely on anyone's storyline too much, but it's again, another way of nuancing, success because there are so many factors and luck is real. Opportunity is real race, gender, geography, socioeconomics, age, genetics, personality. Like these are all parts of what goes into someone having success. Yeah. I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to acknowledge just sort of the, the subtle nuances that go into all of this. Um, I think the the final place where I want to finish is is talking about uh, being a parent because you know like I told you when I first came across this I thought yeah this is the book that every parent should actually give to their kid if their kid is serious about pursuing a career in their arts now maybe it will talk their kid out of doing it because I, I remember I wrote a piece about how to talk to your kids about pursuing a career in the arts and I told the story of how my dad sat me down in his office and painted the the reality of what I was going to get myself into. And, you know, it's like professional tuba player. He's like, you're not going to be looking at job boards. You're going to be looking at obituaries every day to see if somebody died <laughs> yeah. uh, in an orchestra, because that's just Oof. the reality of the situation. And one thing that I wonder, you know, you said something at the very end of the book, you said, I still worry, I still struggle with how to live a fulfilling artist's life, a question that has taken me on a wildly new dimension since having a kid, which almost seems like, you know, a follow-up book waiting to be written. Yeah. Uh, but what I wonder is how you think about that now as a parent and, and what you would tell to the parents who are listening to this. I think about this all the time now. And yeah, I, I definitely had a reckoning with my artistic life through writing this book. And then it imploded in a whole new way when I had a kid and my expectations and my ambitions shifted in other fundamental ways that I could never have envisioned. Um, and so I do think about, you know, what I'll tell my son in terms of making a life in the arts or in any other way that seems at all precarious of which there are, there are plenty of fields where that's true. And, and I also, I got asked when I did an interview for Interlochen, the arts camp that's featured in the book, you know, if I would send my son to Interlochen and I would, of course I would do anything I could think of to support my child if he wanted to pursue the arts. But I'm hoping I can look to him to lead that and to help him, again, you know, cultivate his own intuition in terms of figuring out how long he should work hard at something he wants before he potentially changes direction. You know, I think you have to instill discipline and hard work as, as values. And I certainly know that that's important to me and that comes from my own parents and and the importance they placed on it. I want him to work hard. I want him to be focused, but I also want him 
to feel like he can let go of a goal and to not feel like a failure. And, you know, there's been research on this too, this, this idea that people who are able to let go of what we can call unattainable goals, when they're able to do that, you know, these are people who have lower, fewer depressive symptoms. They have lower cortisol levels, lower stomach inflammation. I mean, there are real physiological benefits to being someone who doesn't hold on, you know, too tightly again to any one of those storylines about who he is as a person. Mm, wow. I love that. That just gave me a whole idea for a blog post about unattainable goals. Excellent. So, uh, well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews of the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think that it's knowing what he or she or they really want versus what we think we want. It's being able to distinguish between um, our own ideas about ourselves that are sort of that come at us from the outside world about who we should be and what our lives should look like and what we actually want for ourselves in order to live fulfilling lives. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been one of those conversations I've been wanting to have for a very long time. And I think uh, a lot of people are going to learn a lot from this. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book and everything else that you're up to? Thank you so much for having me again. This has been really fun to talk with this much depth about the ideas in the books. You know, often interviews are so brief. And so it's like such a joy to talk to someone who had a similar background in the arts and it really resonated. So I, I really appreciate it. And, and also the work that you do. Um, so I have a website, of course, like everyone, uh, rachel-friedman.com. And I'm on Twitter, Rachel Friedman. And um, those are the easiest ways to find me. I have a private Instagram because it's basically just a photo album of my child for my family. <laughs> awesome. And yeah. for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.